2015 everybody this is tangentially speaking i'm chris ryan your host that uh, little mashup consisted of a little chunk of prince a little marvin gay and then ben harper covering sexual healing amor y sexo by rita lee um if you listen to that song find a translation if you don't speak uh, portuguese it um will give you some great insight into the difference between your culture and Brazilian culture when it comes to questions of sex. It's a very frank uh, discussion of the difference between sex and love. And uh, it's a beautiful song, very, very interesting. A song I doubt you would ever hear on an American radio station. Uh, Then you've got George Michael, of course, uh, wanting to come together. Macy Gray telling you about your mother, telling you to keep your freak to yourself. And then it ends with uh, Soon I Will Be Home by Minu Chinello, which has nothing to do with sex. I just find that to be a really sexy song. So I thought I'd end with that little groove. This week's uh, episode is about sex, if you haven't figured that out yet. Um, my guest is Jesse Baring, who is a very interesting guy. I've known him for a few years. He's a research psychologist who specializes in human sexuality He's been all over the place. He was teaching at a university in Ireland when I met him. He's American. Um, and now he he was in Ithaca for a few years. And now he has just moved to New Zealand. So uh, we did a Skype interview. And unfortunately, there was some sort of a thunderstorm happening down there. And it kept cutting us off. So I've tried to edit it together so that it won't... Um, be irritating to listen to. It was kind of irritating to be involved in. Unfortunately, we had to keep reconnecting and picking up where we left off. So if you hear any sort of um, lack of flow in the conversation, that's what it is. Hopefully that won't come through in the version you're listening to now. But anyway, Jesse Baring, he wrote a, his last book is called Perv. Uh, It's a a study of perversions. Uh, So we cover quite a bit of uh, kinky ground in this episode. Uh, He also wrote a book called Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? And Other Reflections on Being Human, uh, which is a collection of essays that uh, he wrote for Scientific American, I believe. And he has another book called The Belief Instinct, also known as The God Instinct. I think it's the belief instinct in in America and the God Instinct in the UK. I don't know, but it's the same book, uh, similar title, um, very interesting stuff. So anyway, Jesse Baring is the guest this week. Fantastic guy. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. 
I hope your new year began well. Uh, mine began interestingly. Cassie and I were uh, on the Oregon coast. Some beautiful days, clear, cold, sunny, no wind, lovely, about as good as you can get in, in midwinter on the Oregon coast. Um, we rented a yurt. They have yurts at uh, state parks here, and um, you got a heater in there and a bed and stuff. So it's not really tent camping, but it's not a Motel 6 either. And right on the beach, beautiful. Had a big driftwood fire and, uh, you know, look at the stars and all that. It was really nice. Uh, New Year's morning, we drove down the coast a little bit, and we uh, found this diner and went in for breakfast. place called the Little Brown Hen, I believe. And uh, it was packed. There were, you know, lots of big parties of 14, 15 people. And so we sat down and uh, it took a while. We ordered right away, but half an hour later, we were still waiting for our food. But the 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 holdup was in the kitchen. Uh, the waiters were very attentive and they kept coming by and refilling my coffee. So in that half hour, I probably had five or six cups of coffee. Um. And then the food came. It was absolutely delicious. And we were finishing up the food. And um, I had one of those moments, uh, you know, where you're, it's just sort of a, a maintenance fart, you know, just a, just a small little let off the pressure kind of fart. Nothing serious, nothing you have to think about, you know, nobody's going to notice it's not going to disrupt any sort of social setting. Well, one of those um, came to me and, uh, you know, without even thinking about it, I just sort of let it go. And then I felt the heat and the liquid. And um, yes, ladies and gentlemen, I started off 2015 shitting myself in the restaurant. I laid a little brown hen of my own there, I'm afraid. Luckily, I was sitting right next to the bathroom, got up, went in there and cleaned up. I, I'm sorry to gross you out, but, um, you know, as the uh, shame exorcist, I guess I should just sort of ignore my own shame and tell you, tell you the truth. <laughs> so, and hey, it happens to everybody. That's the thing about these things, you know, whether we're talking about your erectile dysfunction or you got some weird shit in your teeth and you, you don't know, and you're smiling, whatever, you know, weird bodily, um, horror you uh, experience it happens to pretty much everyone now maybe there are people who this has never happened to uh maybe there are people who don't fart i don't know they may walk among us like you know the undead or something and they look the same as normal people so we don't notice them but um I I think most people fart. I think all people fart eventually. If you live long enough, you're going to fart. And if you fart enough, I mean, think of the hundreds of thousands of little puffs that you've emitted in your lifetime. Well, every once in a while, something's going to go wrong, especially if you've had six or seven cups of coffee on an empty stomach. And uh, yeah, so I was in the bathroom cleaning, you know, running my pants under the sink. And then I came out and my pants are all wet and it's all. And now people write to me a lot about, I don't know if this is the guy I should stay with or this is the woman for me, blah, blah, blah. Well, one thing you might want to consider is if something like this happens to you, are you going to be 
desperate to hide it from your partner or eager to share it because you know he or she will get a good laugh out of it. That's a sign to me. That's one of the signs of a good relationship. When something utterly humiliating occurs and your impulse is to share it with your partner because you know your partner is not going to use it against you to try to make you feel worse. They're on your side and they know that you are a spirit in a body and whatever happens in the body is not to be held against you. Basilda got a good laugh out of me, shitting myself in the little brown hand. First act of 2015. It's all uphill from there, folks. Then we went uh, for a drive. We were driving along the coast highway there. And um, actually, okay, I forgot about this. So I'm driving along because my pants were wet. So as soon as we got in the car, I took my pants off. And Cassie's holding them over the, the blowers of the heater to try to dry them off. And I'm cruising along with no pants on. We had a beach towel in the back, so I sort of put the beach towel over my lap like a, you know, just a cover or something. So we're driving along, and the pants are pretty well dried out. And so I pull off on this sort of logging road. And, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. So I get out of the car. I'm bare-ass naked, and as soon as I get out of the car on this logging road, suddenly this pickup truck comes around the corner, four-wheel driving. So these dudes see me, like, standing there naked, well, from the waist down. So I jump back in the car. They go by, get back out of the car. It seems all clear, put my pants on. And then, like, in the time I'm putting my pants on, two or three other cars go by. So I'm like, what's going on in this logging road? So we decide to go down the logging road and see what's happening. So we cruise down the logging road. Now, we're in a Honda um, Element, uh, which sort of looks like a four-wheel drive, but it's not. It's a two-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, and the clearance is not great. It's better than a normal sedan, but it's not in a pickup truck or anything. So we're cruising along pretty slow on this logging road, and... Finally, four or five miles down, the logging road opens up onto the beach, and we see that people are driving onto the beach and then cruising around on the beach. So we go down along the track, and we, we get to the beach and go around a little bit, and it's great. The sand on the beach is really hard because it's a long tidal area, so it's really packed tight. Um, but between that tidal area and the logging road is loose sand. So we, anyway, we got down fine. Then we uh, decided, okay, it's time to go back. We head back up and, of course, stuck in the sand. So that's the second thing that happened in 2015. Our car is stuck in the sand on the beach. We were there about probably 45 minutes sticking things under the tires and, you know, letting the air out a little bit and trying all these different things to get. And it's just getting deeper and deeper and the muffler and everything is stuck in the sand. So it's it's a bad situation. Luckily, a guy came along with his girlfriend in a big uh, four-wheel drive pickup truck and he had a strap and he was able to pull us out. But it took him quite a while too. He had to do lots of uh, maneuvers until he finally broke us free. So that's how 2015 began for us. <clears throat> Humiliation and um, and failure. But hey, we had a great time doing it. I'm working hard on the book. Thank you all for your encouragement, uh, all your emails, even the ones I, I can't answer them all. I'm sorry. Uh, otherwise, I'll never get anything done on this book. But thank you. I read them all. I really appreciate them. And um, 
the book's sort of grown. It's become bigger than I anticipated. Not necessarily lengthwise, but it's a big thing, you know, civilization. It's a big, big issue. Um, a guy sent me uh, a song that he wrote, and it is a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, it's called Simple Man. I'll play you out with that. And um, you can check his his other work out. He's got uh, a couple web pages. Sale Cassidy, S-A-I-L Cassidy, C-A-S-S-A-D-Y dot bandcamp dot com. Sale Cassidy, C-A-S-S-A-D-Y dot bandcamp dot com. And then that's his solo stuff, um, Colin. And uh, his band is manmadelake.bandcamp.com. So check him out. Uh, great song. Simple Man. Hope you enjoy it. He's got the lyrics up there. You can download a copy of it yourself uh, for a donation of your choice. Uh, hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with the great Jesse Barron. Go out and buy a copy of his book if you don't have books, books, uh, if you don't have him already, he's a very good writer, very witty, uh, very uh, very well-informed, interesting guy. I, I'm glad to know him. I hope you enjoy it. Bye. Help you mop with gentle hands A piece of thread or hard-pulled glass Cause I know I'm not a simp man I take the blows the best I can I try, I need your smile Yes and I, I need your smile Sever all our vicious thoughts Let's try to laugh Steer our heart Cause you know I'm not a simple man You say the words the best you can I need I need to be kind Oh and I I need to be kind Little diamond fingers Resting on the books Running with your pleasure I'm hanging on the hooks Yes, cause I am a difficult man There's anything I've learned Live each day as if you'll die Paint the canvas of your life 
things I know I'm just a wild man You say the words the best you can You try Now I need to be kinder And I know I need to be kind Yes and I I need to be kinder Yes and I I need to be kind Little diamond fingers Resting on the books Running through with pleasure I'm hanging on the hooks Yes, cause I am a difficult man If there's anything Anything I've learned If there's anything I've learned It's how to love All right, I'm speaking with Jesse Baring all the way from the other side of the planet Earth. Uh, where, where the hell are you, Jesse? I feel like I'm in another planet, actually. I feel like I'm living in the land of the lost. I'm in New Zealand, uh, Dunedin, which is the bottom of the South Island in the, uh, on the Otago Peninsula. Wow. What's it like down there? Is summer? It's Wait, summer now. It's well, no, it's, 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 kind of, it's, it's going into summer, sort of late spring. Uh, um and it's it's beautiful i mean it's absolutely it's absolutely gorgeous i think that i i was envisioning new zealand to be a little bit more tropical than it is i'm not sure why i had that impression um but it, it's i don't know maybe 60s 70s um something along those lines but uh i like it here yeah and you're probably in the least tropical part of new zealand right you said you're at the am, bottom yeah. of the lower island so yeah you're yeah the, the northern hemisphere yeah in the northern hemisphere of course you know the sub- more southern you go the hotter it gets but um in the southern hemisphere it's the complete opposite so is, does it feel like uh like washington state like the the northwest u.s or mm. is it more well, Arctic I, than well, that? well i mo- well, I mean, it still is tropical for me because I've moved here from from upstate New York, Ithaca, oh, yeah. um, which is you know snow six months out of the year. So, sixties and seventies is actually quite warm for me. <laughs> um, but it's not, you know, it's not like you know parts of Australia, for instance, like Perth um, or uh, you know Adelaide or something like that is actually very warm. Yeah, but not where it's very warm. This is actually more fall-like weather. Right. Right. Cool. Well, congratulations. You, you've had a lot of changes in, in the last uh, six months to a year. You moved to from from New York State to New Zealand. You got married. How's yeah, that I've feel? got kind of a, a schizophrenic autobiography, I think. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I just got married. I got married last week, actually, <laughs> was which was, week. yeah, just a total non-event. You know, I'd been with my partner for nine years. We had a civil partnership in Northern Ireland um, when I was teaching at Queen's University, uh, in Belfast and Northern Ireland basically doesn't recognize gay marriages. So, um, it, our relationship meant nothing outside of Northern Ireland aside from just, you know, the, the basic civil partnership type of relationship. So we couldn't upgrade like the rest of the UK. 
Um, and I, I just went back to San Diego to the U.S. last week for a conference. And while I was there, um, my partner visited me there. He's living in the U.S. at the moment. And we got married. That, oh. and now that now we're legal in the U.S. at least. But it's a really conv- convoluted affair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm um, familiar with it. be in New Zealand that. eventually, but it, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Is the U.S. marriage recognized in New Zealand for visa purposes? Yes, it is. And, you know, we already had a, actually, he was already my dependent on um, my work permit uh-huh. in New Zealand. So he was allowed to live here, but he's a Mexican citizen uh, and he's living in the, and he's trying to get his U.S. citizenship. And that was, uh, so that there are all sorts of complications that <laughs> yeah. that go into our relationship. But, um, uh-huh. but yeah, we're working our way through it. Right. I could have just married, you know, just a, just a prostitute yesterday, a female prostitute, and it would be much more straightforward. But, um, because he happens to be the same sex, it's a little bit more complicated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I sympathize on on some level. I mean, I'm married to a Mozambican, and we're you know mm-hmm. we're residing in Spain until recently, and now it's a big mess. I mean, yeah. you know, everything you do in that kind of a relationship is just so complicated. And I did want to clarify that your wife is not a prostitute. Uh, so that's right. Well, right. how do you know? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I met her, and she's my, a lovely woman. My cash she would flow. Never, she would never do that. She may not be a prostitute, but I'm a pimp. So you are. You are. I've met you too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. All right. Enough We're of that. Doing well. um, so you you are among other things the the famous author of Perv. You are the go to guy uh, for sexual perversions and. Uh, and what was the the earlier book was why is my penis shaped like that or why is the penis shaped well, like that? Well, I don't know. That? Yeah, I don't know why your penis is shaped like that. But <laughs> <laughs> the title of the book was why is the penis why is the penis shaped the like penis. that? The yeah. penis, the human penis. So, and it, you had a book of of essays or something before that, right? No, that was the book of essays. Oh, that why is, is the, the book penis of shaped essays. like that is a collection of essays. Oh, okay. These were right. articles that I'd written, sort of a best of collection, I guess, in Scientific American, right. Slate, Slate Magazine, primarily. Yeah, I had a book before that, um, a, a, a very different topic, which was um, the belief instinct about the evolution of religion and human psychology. That's right. You are churning these things out, man. How well, I was for a while. I've, I've I've kind of slowed down at the moment. I you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I'm not, not a good multitasker, actually. So um, I published three books in three years, and I think it was just sort of an artifact of my um, challenged human psychology in the sense of only being able to work on one project at a time and not being able to attend to other issues. So everything else in my, my life basically collapsed and fell apart, but I did manage to get three books out. Uh, what What's your writing? Do you have like a writing, uh, you know, technique or, or habit? Mm. Do you like one of these guys gets up every morning and gets right to it or you just sort of muddle through? No. Um, I write when the mood strikes me. And I think that if you, you know, one of the things that I learned actually when I when I was writing for a living for the past two years, I left my academic job um, at Queen's University and I wrote in upstate New York when I was living in Ithaca, I just wrote professionally. And that was actually harder for me because, you know, when you're writing to make a living, you're doing it for your livelihood and it becomes your job. Um, The motivation begins to 
it begins to, I think, be compromised a little bit because it's it's an extrinsic motivation. You're doing it for your livelihood. Whereas when I was an academic, and I'm back in an academic job now, actually, which is much better. Um, you write only because you're motivated to write. You have the passion or the enthusiasm, you know, whenever the mood strikes you, and that's how I work best. Hmm. Like it's like the difference between being a lover and a prostitute. Yeah. Yes, I think that's probably there's probably some truth to that. Yes. <laughs> if we're and having back having wor- and having worked in both professions, I can definitely say that that is true. <laughs> that is true. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, let's explore that. When were you a prostitute? Um, back when I was about seventeen or eighteen, a senior. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was I was going to let I you go, con- man. I could concoct a whole story here, but that, that why not? Just, why a little not? bit. Call it research. It's a tax yeah, write-off at yeah. this point. That's true. Yeah, I'm a psychologist. I can do deceptive research. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so okay. So you wrote the belief instinct, which was uh, sort of your entry into the the, the neo um, atheist movement is that accurate yeah but mine my book unfortunately although it was characterized as an, another new atheist book it was quite i think it i mean for me at least um taking a biased perspective i think it was very different from what you saw from richard dawkins and um christopher hitchens and sam harris you know that sort of that strain of radical new atheism um my book was much less vitriolic in the sense of you know I wasn't terribly interested in just pointing out how religious people are stupid, um, you know, which is basically the bottom line with those books. It was more looking at why human psychology evolved over hundred thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to be so susceptible to the illusion of God and the afterlife and um, concepts like destiny. So we we fall prey to these types of ideas because our our minds are basically predisposed to that type of thinking. Um, I don't believe that God exists, but I also think that the human mind is organized in such a fashion that it's our intuition to assume that he does. Right. So, Okay, now let, let's explore that a little bit, because it's something I'm looking at uh, in the book I'm writing now as well. And I like the, I like the angle you take, um, <clears throat> which, as you say, is is beyond just saying religious people are stupid. But you are, you you definitely, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not, not saying that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm just clarifying that there are there are reasons that that our ignorance or vulner, you know, our sort of stupidity sort of latches onto these <laughs> concepts. Um, but I but I think that they are escapable. I think that we can reason ourselves out of them if we're aware well, of the, the way that the illusions operate. Okay, all right. So there's a lot of very loaded language in here. Illusions and, you know, we can reason our way out of them and we, we fall for this and we're susceptible to that. So there's a lot. Your, your framing uh, is very clear as to where your, your perspective on this is. But oh, I guess the question I, I want to ask is, don't these belief or cognitive structures, whether you find them to be accurate or not on some spiritual level, don't they fulfill a function? Isn't there research showing that people who believe in a life after death have less anxiety when facing terminal illness? They, they uh, have less anxiety around grieving for loved ones who have died. Isn't there a psychological value in these beliefs, separate from the question of whether they're scientifically accurate or not? 
Yeah, that's a different question. I mean, that's it's an, ortho- it's an orthogonal question about whether they're useful um, or have some sort of pragmatic value in terms of subjective well-being. And there, are, there is data, there are data suggesting that that's in fact the case. Um, there, are, there are some mixed data. It's just not quite that straightforward. Uh, you know, one of the assumptions for a while was that um, the reason people believe in life after death this is sort of a catch-all theory, and Freud, everybody from you know Freud to Dawkins has argued in this sense that the reason that we believe in life after death is that it, it somehow um, helps us to deal with our own mortality, anxiety, sort of our fear of death. We, we create or invent the existence of the afterlife to make us feel better. But if you look at the actual empirical data, there's no evidence to support that whatsoever. There's no, the people who believe in the afterlife have no greater death anxiety than people who don't believe in the afterlife. There's no direct, um, some sort of one-on-one relationship between those two, two things, um, which to me suggests more that there's an underlying cognitive bias to project ourselves into a future that doesn't exist um, in the absence of our functioning brain than it does, you know, have anything to do with anxiety. Right. Okay. But now that you're married, um, you've got to think about this old adage, uh, you know, that everyone says. Uh, First of all, I should say that I don't think anything will change now that I'm married. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, everyone says the the key to happiness in a marriage is recognizing that it's better to be happy than to be right. <laughs> yes. And I do agree with that in the sense of a relationship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I'm not sure, you know, but. And, I, and I'm a pragmatist when it comes to religion. And that's why I say that, you know, my book was not terribly focused on who's right and who's wrong and, um, and you know, religious people being dumb, uh, whereas scientifically literate people are much more better educated and so on, and who's better and who's worse. It's, it's you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in that because it's not that interesting to me. It's the more, the more um, fascinating part of the puzzle for me is why, why so many people, irrespective of their IQ, irrespective of their education, irrespective of their discipline, um, irrespective of their uh, the wealth of knowledge that they have about the, the natural world, still succumb to this belief that there is a mind out there that we typically call God that cares what we do and what we don't do, um, that our minds will continue functioning in the absence of our neural substrate that generates any subjective experience that allows that that type of functioning to occur and why we think that there's such a thing as you know fate and destiny and things happen for a reason um those those to me are the more interesting questions yeah yeah and those are the sorts of questions that uh, con men and and magicians love to explore because it it opens up their ability to create illusions right because they play into that sort of stuff yeah they work on the, the human cotton universals yeah yeah exactly but once but once you're aware but once you're aware of how it all works the illusion does get irreparably shattered (laughs) and um and to me that is actually a a humanitarian um you know it's a humanitarian mission the sense of of being uh, of, of representing moral progress you know shattering that illusion to me once you acknowledge the way that it works and that it is in fact epistemologically an illusion. It is not true. It is just simply the way that our our brains conjure up the natural world. Then the whole game changes, and that's you know that's why I think that this is the way to go rather than just simply saying can't 
you know, you're so stupid for believing that, you know, you can get pregnant from um, immaculate conception or something like that. Right. Yeah. You know, I, but I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm partly stupid because I'm not a believer, but I have, well, maybe I am a believer. I don't know. I, I, um, you religious zealot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be like, uh, who was it, St. Augustine, who like partied it up for the first 40 or 50 years of his life. Yeah, you know, at the last like, minute to change. It's yeah, fine. Hey, you're fine. You're good. It's not, all good. None of you should do what I've been doing for the last 40 years. <laughs> um, uh, no, no, like you said something, you said, uh, I, I, I lost the phrase, but you said something like, it, you know, it's merely an epiphenomena of the way the, the brain interacts with the environment or something like that. And I was thinking about, you know, color or vision. Right. Vision is just an epiphenomenon of the way the brain interacts with the environment. And yet vision exists. You know, we can see we can drive down a road mm-hmm. based upon what our eyes and brain are, are creating. Now, what we're seeing is not actually what's there. Right. Color doesn't exist until wavelengths interact with eyes and brains. Yes. So in that sense, I mean, that's that's sort of where I come down on these issues. It's like, you know, on the side on one one side, you can say, well, you know, none of this is real. And, you know, this consciousness obviously doesn't exist without the brain. And on the other yeah, side, but we are. But remember, we are, you know, we're both evolutionarily oriented theorists in the sense of thinking about ancestral conditions and so on. And if the bottom line um, in human psychology is to generate behavior that would have been adaptive at the level of genetic success. It doesn't matter what, whether our perceptions are veridical, which is true, or false. All that matters is that it generates behavior that is self-serving to our genetic replication. Okay, all that matters to whom? And uh, my argument in that book, Belief Instinct, was that the illusion... All, all that matters at the level of genetic success, so the, the level of the individual organism. Right, but um, you're, so I mean, the, but you're you're gay, and I'm I have no kids, so yeah. neither one of us is successful on any genetic level. No, we're losers in that sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the but, loser podcast. But what is, but yes, but so we are essentially you know genetic dead ends. However, I think that there are there are alternative ways to. Um, to facilitate inclusive fitness uh, consequences in terms of success. I mean, you know, what are we, why, what are we doing spending our time on? We're writing books, you know, and our, the argument would be from some social psychologists that we're writing books because we're trying to enhance our reputations. We're trying to enhance our reputations because it's going to give us um, greater social status. And if we have greater social status, and ultimately that's going to spill over into our, um, e- even our non-direct genetic relatives of our nephews and nieces and, you know, future descendants and relatives and so on. So, there are still there are still alternate ways of being evolutionarily successful as a gay male um, or, or gay woman or um, a heterosexual male that doesn't have children. Yeah, but you know what that that's so anyway. But, but but what I was trying to what I was trying to yeah. what I was trying to argue though, however, is that that you know my argument for the evolution of God is that God, although God does not exist and God is a cognitive illusion, the the fact that it is such a persuasive and powerful illusion causes behaviors that 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 are genetically adaptive uh, um, in the long term in terms of increasing genetic success. Right. That's a whole another conversation. 
together. But um, but but I'm not saying it's a it's a flaw. I, I'm just simply saying that that's the way that the human brain evolved. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it represents the natural world. It's a sort of scratch on the lens of cognition. Right. But it's a meaningful scratch. Right. Right. So. Uh, Okay, here's where I come down on the question of God. I, to me, God is is um, comparable to the placebo response, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's simultaneously true and not true, in the yes. sense that the placebo is, you know, by definition, not an active chemical that's having any effect on the body, and yet there is no question you know scientifically replicated studies all over the place have shown that the placebo effect is robust and predictable and uh, very uh, you know tangible and measurable so right. something can be both real and unreal at the same time yeah we're on the same page about that yeah yeah okay but but no i think but but i think the difference is in the sense of it re- reflecting a reality that exists outside of your head versus not. And like the placebo effect, it, there is no truth outside of the head when it comes to, when it comes to the existence of God. Well, but you know, the placebo effect there, there's truth in, you know, in your foot. If you've got foot pain and you take a pill that, you know, you think is going to change that foot pain it does. I mean, well, if you take away the but if you take away the mind, um, it becomes a Good question. Ah, I see what you're saying. It's, you know, right, it's, sort of, right. it's all filtered through the interpretive lens of human cognition. Yeah. Human cognition is representing reality falsely, and it works. That's fine. And I think that's, you know, I, I wouldn't argue that's a bad thing. Well, but you said falsely. Subjective weapon. See, that's, I mean, you keep using this loaded language, falsely. And, and earlier you were mm-hmm. talking about moral advancement and shattering the illusion of God. Yes. I'm yes. not so sure. See, but I think that, but that re- you're, trying that, to, you're that playing re- fast and loose no, but, here. And I, no, that's, that seems like the terminology that you use for a vagina or something, fast and loose. Um, that's not the way that I'm using that. I, I'm using, I'm, obviously, these types of arguments require considerable unpacking. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I do think that ultimately, if you look deeply enough at these questions, we need to be aware of the way and the mechanisms by which the illusions operate to move forward. You know, right now, otherwise, we're just simply going to be stuck in this sort of um, interminable debate about whether it, whether it's true or false or it exists or it doesn't, um, you know, once you once we get to the point where we simply look at it as a artifact, an artifact of the human mind, um, and we understand that the way that the human mind operates in generating the illusions, then we can move forward in terms of our humanistic thinking. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. But once you frame it that way, you've already won any debate you're having. So yes, and that's that's exactly the point. <laughs> <laughs> I would never let you do that if I were yes. facing off against <laughs> you somewhere. Um, okay. So so first you you abandon the good Lord, then you get uh, obsessed with the penis, and then you uh, study purse. These aren't. Yeah, but that's not mutually exclusive. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Some people no, worship honestly, the you know, penis. When I, you know, when I when I started writing about sex and all that business and morality, you know, so much of that had been influenced and dominated really by this you know cultural milieu by in which i grew up and the sense of you know what was inherently right and what was inherently wrong about what we do with our genitalia and what god thought and what god didn't think and who'd be punished by aids and all that sort of shit you know that that went into the background of my my interest i think in in in, in, in writing about sex right 
Where did you grow up? Florida or someplace? I bounced around. I, I, you know, Virginia as a kid, Ohio. Um, No, I didn't go to Florida until I was in college. Ah, okay. All right. And uh, what what did you study as an undergrad? Anthropology, actually, was my major. Um, and then I minored in psychology and um, got a uh, got a master's degree in experimental psychology working with chimpanzees. Um, I, I thought for a long time I wanted to be sort of the next Jane Goodall or something. I wanted to be – I wanted to, to – to show why chimpanzees were more human-like than they, you know, we sort of gave them credit for and all the atrocities that we commit in biomedical laboratories and chimpanzees for the sake of human beings when in fact they're just a slightly different species and so on. And I still do have strong feelings about that. Um, I got my master's degree in Louisiana working at a biomedical lab actually for a couple of years um, and not not working in biomedical research, but uh, in a laboratory that we were doing behavioral research on chimpanzee social psychology and social cognition, uh, um, but surrounded by all these chimps that were used and that were basically leased out to different pharmaceutical country uh, companies for for all sorts of testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that was a strange experience. You know, just be surrounded by hundreds of. Very, you know, I don't know if you've ever been around chimps, but um, they're eerily human-like in many ways. Uh, Just it's sort of an unsettling experience when you find yourself surrounded by our closest living relative in conditions like that. You know, none of them have names. It's not like a Jane Goodall type of scenario. This is a hardcore, you know, this was a, a research lab that was out in the bayou in New Iberia, Louisiana. Um, and these chimps were in these uh, steel and concrete cages. None of them had names. You know, they had tattoos like they were in, you know, concentration camps or something. Um, and you just see the incredible diversity between individuals. You see, you know, there's, some of them are short, some are tall, some are fat, some are skinny, some are light-complected, some are dark-complected. You see this incredible variation um, in the population that reminds you, of course, of, of human beings and human, human differences. All right. I'll start the mic again. Um, when I lost you, by the way, I should just tell our, our listeners we're, we're speaking on Skype, which is fantastic, but uh, it's, it's sort of fading in and out a little bit. There's a big rainstorm going on down in New Zealand. So we're, we're speaking through that. Um, you were talking about, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about uh, working at the at the laboratory with the primates in in New Iberia. I was thinking it sounded like a concentration camp, and then you used the phrase. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, did did you feel like that? Did you feel like holy shit? Someday people are going to look back and and wonder how someone like me could do something like this. Well, first of all, I should say that my intentions were more i you know at least i was rationalizing it as being much more benevolent than the people that were attracted to that sort of career um uh just because it seemed you know that was the way to go and and it was you know i was i was actually there because i was trying to help them at least that was my logic at the time i had i had opportunities to go to graduate school working with chimpanzees uh doing sign language research in louisiana and georgia um and I also had this opportunity to go to this biomedical lab working with chimpanzees, <laughs> not doing biomedical research, but, you know, working in that, that type of environment. And my, my, my thinking at that time was, well, you know, those are the animals, those are the chimpanzees that would really need 
you know, help. You know, they need a more enriched environment. They need, um, you know, they could benefit more by, by you know, my intervention than, you know, these pampered chimpanzees that are uh, at these universities, uh, at these other places, you know, that are basically being treated like human beings. But when I got there, it was just so overwhelming that any, you know, any, any ideas that I had that I, I was somehow going to, you know, be a, a savior or hero in terms of improving their lives quickly evaporated. Mm. Um, it was just much bigger than me. Um, and I, you know, I think that, I, I think that most of the people that worked there were just simply local people that weren't terribly well educated. They had this, you know, they were, you know, minimum wage jobs, cleaning the cages. Uh, they didn't think very uh, deeply about exactly the nature of what they were doing. They were just animals to them. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't see them as bad people. I, I just think that, uh, it, it all depends on how you frame what you're doing and the motives for what you're doing. I mean, many of these people would say that, you know, they're, they're saving lives, of course, because they're doing experimental research that uh, is critical and vital for saving human beings. Um, and the closest that you can get, of course, is is with these primate species. And uh, you can't do this type of invasive research with human beings. Uh so it's complicated. It's, yeah, it's very complicated. And, and that, it, you know, it was it wasn't for me, but yeah, um, but but I appreciated all the nuances that I hadn't really considered um, before I went there after after having spent some time there and the people that worked there. That argument, by the way, <clears throat> of uh, about medical research being you know necessary in primates and all that. Have you read Peter Singer's uh, comments on that? You know oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I became a vegetarian. I became a vegetarian for about five years after I read Animal Liberation. Right. Actually, so right. very familiar with with Peter Singer's views um, and and many other views specifically about the use of primates in experimental research. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it's complicated, and I developed a a much more. Uh, uh, a much richer appreciation for those complications having worked there for a period of time um, and uh, understanding that it's not simply black and white. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's complicated for sure. Um, the thing I was referring to in Peter Singer for listeners who aren't aware of it is he specifically, he talked about that argument that, uh, you know, chimpanzees are, are necessary and other primates necessary because they're genetically close to humans and we can't do research on human beings. And, and what he said was, what about people who are born brain dead, which happens all the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, they are genetically exactly human beings. So if what we're looking at is, you know, what is the biochemical response to, you know, different dosages and this and that, it's much better to be doing this research on children who are born brain dead and who otherwise are just left to die than it is uh, to be doing on sentient uh, chimpanzees who are, you know, uh, seem to have the consciousness and intelligence of a three or four year old child. So yeah, if we're con- yeah, if we're consequentialists, I mean, that is obviously a logical argument. And I'm, t- uh, you know, typically, I would be sympathetic to that. I think that there are, there are other issues that go along with it, the sense of, you know, the impact on um the parents for instance of the person sure. the child that's brain dead and so on sure. um you know i think we get into all that nonsense about the soul and religion and all that business and, uh, <laughs> just, and this is why i was talking neutral, earlier about you know, neutral that, framing yeah yeah it muddies it muddies the waters um, yeah, yeah but but yes 
right. Well, I, I interviewed a guy recently who also worked with chimpanzees in graduate school and a uh, very different kind of environment. They were doing cognitive research on the chimps and the. Well, I was too, I should say. But, oh. but, but, but I was surrounded by other chimpanzees that were used for other pharmaceutical oh. and biomedical purposes. The Do research you... that I was doing was only on behavioral and cognition research. Uh, do you ever have nightmares about that place? Um, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't until I started hearing the stories more recently after I graduated that program about people being attacked by chimpanzees and having their faces ripped off and being castrated and so on by, 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 um, disgruntled, uh, you know, chimpanzees that were raised as pets and so on. Um, uh, for some reason, stupidly, I didn't, I didn't fear that at the time, but, uh, but it's definitely a very real danger, but no, I have, I have nightmares about that. Um, but because I, you know, like I said, I wasn't doing the biomedical research, you know, I don't feel, you know, these sort of, you know, I'm not, not visited by these by these feelings of regret and remorse that otherwise I might be. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like it would be such a heavy environment emotionally, you know, like working oh, in yeah, prison that's, or that's something. That's why I got out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember going actually back in one room. Um, there was sort of a, a quarantine facility where there were thousands, you know, not thousands, hundreds of chimpanzees that were just sort of screaming their heads off. And there was a mother chimpanzee grasping her infant sort of desperately to her chest, reaching out toward me and screaming. Um, it, it was, and I do still have these sort of nightmarish visions about that. Um, the problem is that, you know, through our anthropomorphic lens, what do we want to do? We want to reach out and hold the hand of that, that chimpanzee and comfort and soothe that. Ch- but if I had done that, she would basically have ripped my arm off. <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange, uh, very strange environment. Yeah. Friends of all. You know, yeah. Friends of all told me a great story about <clears throat> going back to uh, the, the facility where he did his graduate work in Holland probably 20 or 25 years later, and um, one of the the female bonobos that he worked with when she was, uh, uh, you know, just very young was still there, and she recognized him, and he went over near her, and she reached out, and he, you know, like you, he knows, you, you know, they're five times stronger than a human. You don't want to get in trouble, but she was obviously, she remembered him and it was affectionate. And he, he went up next to the, the cage and she put her hand on the back of his head and pulled him in and gave him a tongue kiss. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was no getting away, you know? <laughs> no, no. But you know, that's, that's the risk, of course. I mean, I, I worked when I was, before I worked at that lab, I worked with chimpanzees in Miami at a sanctuary. And I, I was the babysitter, basically. I spent the night's as a caretaker for a six-month-old chimp, and I worked with her until she was three, and her name was Noelle. And similarly, I went back after about 10 years uh, of not having seen her, and she seemed like she recognized me. Um, uh, She got excited, but she gets excited with lots of people (laughs) when they come visit, and I I wouldn't put myself in, in the cage with her, even though my intuition would be that, you know, she would, she would be fine. Um, That's playing with fire. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you, uh, we were transitioning from your your um, lack of godliness to your uh, focus on the penis. I think was that. Yes, short, very short journey there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so you you strayed from God and fell right into sin. 
And uh, well, I was always in sin, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I I started. You know, I'm trained as an evolutionary theorist, so I've, I've, I've you know, I like, I'd like to keep up to speed about evolutionary developments and laboratories and evolutionary psychology and um, interesting experiments and so on. Um, and I, at some point, I started writing articles for Scientific American, and I wrote, I wrote an article about the shape of the penis and. Um, the human penis and why the human penis looks the way that it does basically. And, um, that, you know, that kind of caught on, I guess. And, uh, but that, you know, that was just one essay of many that I wrote about human sexuality. Yeah. Of the, of the many different arguments we make in sex at dawn, you know, trying to explain or justify this understanding of prehistoric sexuality, the, the shape of the penis as an indication of sperm competition seems to be the one that gets ridiculed the most mm-hmm. frequently. It, it, there's mm-hmm. something about that that makes people just scoff and, and you know, stalk out of the room. It, it really bothers people. Mm-hmm. Have you found that? Um, yeah, but those people typically just have problems. <laughs> no, no, I, I, Their penis is I mean, shape, right? I think you know it makes a lot of intuitive sense. There's empirical support. The, you know, it, you know, people might not be a hundred percent pleased with the experimental methods that have gone into devising the theory and and uh, you know providing support for the hypothesis that the coronal ridge evolved to in a shape that particular way to uh, extract competitor sperm from the re- from the, the the vaginal canal. But you know, there's that's the best argument as far as I'm concerned, um, and uh, it, we're just sort of you know we're waiting for a more convincing argument. If there's any alternative, um, I'm certainly open-minded enough to to, to look at it. But so, there's not. Yeah. So then people would say, well, then why didn't chimpanzee penises evolve the same way? Well, first of all, we you know there's, it's been about two hundred thousand years since we last shared a common ancestor with chimpanzees. So a lot happened um, over that extensive period of time. It's not like it was sort of you know we were just sort of the next nod you know next node over in the um, um, taxonomy evolutionarily. It's there were been, twenty different intermediate twenty different intermediate species. Yeah, that but far far longer. I think you said two hundred thousand years. Isn't it more like three or four million? Oh, sorry. What did I say? Yeah, yeah, two hundred thousand yeah. since we've been anatomically modern humans. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's actually closer to about seven million. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, two, well, three to seven million. Yeah, yeah. which is a long time, yeah. irrespective. And a lot's happened since since that period of time in the sense of um, um, the 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 selective pressures that have operated on hominid species and chimpanzees have a different reproductive strategy you know they've got extreme you know they've got very large testicles for instance and tiny little penises um uh we're talking common chimpanzees here um so they're incredibly promiscuous and they also have sex very fast i think you know the average uh inner vaginal inner inner what's the term i'm looking for intermission inter no inter ejaculatory interval something along those lines basically um how long it takes for the average chimpanzee to come um having sex with a female is is on the order of seconds um for us you know we're we're closer to the minute mark as the average (laughs) (laughs) so but you know yes uh, so um 
so chimpanzees have lots of sex and they have very fast i mean if you've ever seen a chimpanzee um copulating which I, i'm assuming you have chris but I, I could be wrong about that um they're 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 it's just basically sort of a you know a really frantic exercise that takes you know just a couple milliseconds or seconds yeah um you know there's nothing like what we would conceptualize as love making <laughs> that, that human beings do and i think the reason for that is that you know we have different types of brains and one of the one of the uh, defining aspects of our brains is our social cognition we could take the perspective of the person that we're having sex with and synchronize our subjective experiences in line with um, having synchronous organisms Huh. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it. So you think synchronous orgasms? Uh, interesting. Now, do in your experience, do female chimpanzees have orgasm? Well, with the chimpanzees that I've had, <laughs> <laughs> no, I you have, fell I, for I, it. <laughs> um, I think there is physiological evidence, certainly, um, that if you look at sort of the behavioral responses during sex. There's pleasure. <laughs> there's sort of you know there's a, the phenomenological display of pleasure that's taking place, um, and I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any. There's there's, pr- there's probably studies out there, but I'm not aware of any that have looked directly at neuroscientific evidence of orgasms in chimpanzees. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Yeah, yeah. It's but I think that the quite the, I think that the difference is that the 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 male chimpanzee having sex with that female chimpanzee would have no ability to to process or conceptualize the female's orgasm or to care about it. <laughs> right. Well, but, yeah, but that runs up against, I mean, I, I don't know that Franz Duvall is looking specifically at this sort of empathy, but, you know, that whole mm-hmm. line of research of, of primate empathy and sense of justice and all that, you mm-hmm. know, maybe, maybe that's related. You know, the, it is. It is related. I mean, it's yeah. it's basically you know, do chimpanzees have an awareness of other minds? That's yeah. the big question, and that's that's been the question for about thirty years now, and it's still an unresolved question. Uh-huh. I actually lean lean toward the argument that they don't, or that their understanding of other minds is qualitatively different from our understanding of other minds, and they're right. much more likely. They're much more. Um, they they see each other more as objects than human beings see each other as objects. We're much more like we're much more empathetic. Um, meaningfully so than than any other species on the face of the earth hmm. and that has proven to be all sort you know the the source of all sorts of problems and um, and good things as well right right um okay so now you get into perv after that now one one question i've been wanting to ask you for a while is you know how do you feel as a gay man working in evolutionary science do you feel that that homosexuality in general is sort of ignored by evolutionary science unjustly or is it okay to ignore it because as we were saying earlier uh homosexual strictly homosexual people are genetic dead ends so they sort of don't mm, they don't play into the game of evolution in some sense Oh, I, f- I feel like an anomaly. No, really? I, 
<laughs> well, I mean, in some ways, I guess, but 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 again, you know, like I was saying earlier, I think you know, the traditional evolutionary perspective on homosexuality was that it was unnatural, it was a right. dead end, and so on. But I think the more modernist approaches to looking at uh, evolutionary biology and same-sex orientation is to conceptualize it within the framework of inclusive fitness theory. So it doesn't matter whether I'm reproductively successful in terms of direct. Uh, direct heredity. What matters is that those, my my siblings, my nephews, my nieces, my cousins, you know, anybody who shares genetic material with me, um, if somehow I'm, you know, my existence as the homosexual male, you know, if we're looking at the adaptive question, whether it's adaptive or not, contributes to their genetic success, then that opens up a whole new um, a way to look at it. That, and, that argument has always seemed very, very weak to me, I have to say. It, it sounds almost like a, a religious argument, grasping at straws to hold the theory up in the face of overwhelming mm-hmm. evidence against it. I mean, in your case, I imagine, I don't know if you've written a, a, a will, but I imagine most or all of what you would leave behind would go directly to your partner, who's not genetically related to you at all. It's you actually know? going to my cat. It's actually going to my cat. But no. <laughs> who, who is <laughs> no, also I, not directly related to you. So, I mean, right. you know, this argue, this inclusive fitness, what do you think about the whole E.O. Wilson, you know, group selection and all that kind of stuff that's being debated again? Um, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more of a, um, uh, you know, sort of a, a traditionalist in, in that sense. And mm-hmm. although I, I think there's currency in group selection theory, some of the more recent work by, you know, David Sloan Wilson and, and E.O. Wilson, um, just pitching, you know, pitting, pitting the issues differently than we're accustomed to makes more sense. But, um, but I mean, it, I I think that some of the arguments for inclusive fitness with homosexuality, like the, uh, what's that? I can't remember the, the, the formal term for it, but basically the, the, um, uh, the, the, the uncle hypothesis that somehow, you know, you, because you're not having your own kids, you're helping to, you're investing more in your, your, your siblings' children, for instance, and that gives them a, you know, a legs up in the, you know, genetic arms race and so on. I've never found those terribly convincing, but, um, but I think that there are other there are other there are other ways to obtain a inclusive fitness and to contribute to that. But I also think that you know whether homosexuality is adaptive or 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 maladaptive even um, says at zero about whether it's morally right or wrong. Right. And I think that that's where we oftentimes get those you know we get those wires crossed. Um, if you take away the God question, which is you know why where I started at the very beginning of this conversation and why I was doing that research, if you take God out of the, the picture, then these issues become far less complicated. Um, you know, it's not a moral question anymore in terms of what God wants or what God doesn't want. You know, asking whether it's natural or unnatural says absolutely nothing about whether we should or shouldn't do it. Right. I think even beyond God, take reproduction out of it. I think that's a big problem mm-hmm. as well, that people are assuming that human sexuality is about reproduction, which, you know, of course, if, you, if you're if you an old-school evolutionary theorist, as, as you were saying you are to some extent, then reproduction has to be an important issue in, in sexuality. But, 
you know, I've sort of, you know, maybe because I'm, I'm more ignorant about these issues, <laughs> I feel free to just throw away reproduction. I think reproduction's an occasional byproduct of human sexual behavior. And I know so, you do. Yeah. And so once you look <laughs> at it, <laughs> yeah, keep, keep your comments to yourself. <laughs> but once you look at human hey. sexuality, you know, in social terms as, as being its primary function, then same sex, mm-hmm. Uh, interaction makes as much sense as any other interaction. It's about no, absolutely. You yeah. know, form. I mean, it does. It does from that. If, I mean, it, it, from that perspective, I completely agree with you. I'm not sure I would agree with you, sort of, on the basic premises of the, you know, the uh, the absence of importance for reproduction um, or the minimal importance of reproduction in terms of evolutionary uh, consequences, but. But the the logic follows yeah. in terms of the argument that you're making. Well, it's funny. I mean, people may you know people who are steeped in this theory have a hard time with it. But you know, obviously, and one of the the, the critiques I've received from scientists is they say, "Yeah, show me one animal that doesn't care about paternity," and it's like, well, bonobos, right? Bonobos mm-hmm. don't give a shit about paternity. And chimpanzees, as you were saying earlier, obviously are participating in sperm competition. They're highly promiscuous. They've got their, you know, massive sperm production, you know, testicles. It doesn't seem to me that paternity is a huge issue there. I know there's, you know, what what do they call it? Um, uh, What's the the coy term they use when one of the males drags a female off into the woods for three days when she's ovulating? It's like courtship behavior. Surreptitious mating or something like that. No, no, there's there's some like. Oh, you're thinking a a much more direct, uh, aggressive act. (laughs) Well, they're essentially like dragging the female off to rape her for three days while she's ovulating, you know. But they're they're Mm -hmm. in science. I forget what the term is, but there's some sort of courtship, you know, courtly term for it. Anyway, it you know it seems to me that there are plenty of of mammals where paternity certainty isn't um, a major issue, if an issue at all. Let's uh, we're gonna have to wrap this up because the the powers that be, God, God doesn't yes. want us to talk, is what it is. Sticking his nose into it again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, why don't you just talk a little bit about Perv? Uh, because I'm hoping that some of our our listeners will go out and buy a copy. It's uh, it's a very interesting book, doing quite well from what I understand. Has I see it's published in how many languages now? I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe ten. <laughs> That's not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> I've been keeping track. Aren't you cool? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe ten. Yeah. Uh, That's they don't. They honestly, they don't even tell me these things. But um, so yeah. Perv is my last book, The Sexual Deviant and All of Us, is the subtitle, um, and it explores. You know both the the sociological and psychological, and also the historical um, issues surrounding what we consider to be sexual deviance, and you know why we feel so strongly that some sexual orientations, some behaviors, are fundamentally wrong, and perhaps you know digging a bit deeper into into that logic and. Um, and, and coming up with some challenging questions about our positions at the end of it. Did you find that sexual deviance, is, since we're going to use that phrase with no moral judgment attached to it, obviously, did you find that that uh, is something that is, mm, how can I say, is it, a, is it a phenomena related to civilization? And repression. Um, there have been there have been very few study, anthropological studies. You know these sort of detailed ethnographic reports of 
um, unusual sexual practices in hunter-gatherer societies, for instance, small-scale um, yeah. communities. But from the little that we have, those records, there there seem to be very, uh, very minimal variance in, yeah. uh, in 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 the human sexual portfolio. So uh, you didn't find a lot of the paraphilias and fetishes in hunter-gatherer societies, for instance, that you find in large-scale industrialized um, communities. Is so that- it, it could be the artifact, and some have argued quite strongly that that is it is you know the fact that we are. Um, you know, so many people have these so-called sexual deviances. And like you said, you know, it's not, this is not a negative use of that word. It's more just a statistical term, deviance. Um, the fact that we do have so much variance in contemporary um, societies, large, large, large groups is, is an artifact of a, an unnatural um, social environment. Uh, you know, I, I've, I'm familiar with the few studies that you mentioned, and it's true. It, it, it's sort of disappointing to me how little yes, uh, yeah. perversion there seems to be in hunter-gatherer societies. <laughs> because, I know, yeah, yeah. You know, of course, I'm I'm preaching the gospel of the the hunter-gatherer, you know, un un uh, repressed sexuality, and it seems that when it isn't repressed, it's pretty boring in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and even you know, even societies that are quite um, tolerant of sexual issues and sexual diversity um you still don't find you know a lot of diversity in terms of sexual behaviors well, so it's not it's yeah. not as clear it's not as clear cut as just being well they don't do it because it's more strongly penalized or punished it just doesn't emerge i would say it's the inverse of that almost that because there isn't pressure against a, a sort of easy expression it never gets complicated it could be yeah well, and the other thing, you know, that I've, I've seen in those studies is even in some of those societies, homosexuality is unknown. Right. There are, you know, there are a handful of societies where they, at least the, the, the people claim to never have seen or even heard of homosexuality before, which goes completely against the grain of, you know, what, what we think, you know, that, that there's like a 10% representation of any general human uh, community that is attracted primarily to the same sex. Um, that doesn't seem to be universally true. And, and, and like I said, that's even in societies where homosexuality would be tolerated. If you, if you talk to these people about what the phenomenon is, you know, some of them say, well, you know, that would be a great thing. You know, you wouldn't have to be worried about, you know, the men could do their work. They wouldn't have to be worried about all these women and so on. Um, but even in those societies, they just say that they've never heard of it. It just hasn't happened. Yeah. Yeah, oral sex, same thing. Like, oh, why would you do that? Never thought of it. <laughs> like, right. Wow. Yeah, the more utilitarian societies, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, listen, uh, I really appreciate you you taking the time and forging through all these interruptions. I'll I'll edit them all together so it's not as irritating for the listeners as it has been for for us. <laughs> but, <laughs> cool. That sounds like a plan. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'd appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd I'd love to talk with you more. I'm sure people are going to have a million questions about this so uh you know maybe when we're in the same hemisphere sometime we can do it again that'd be fun all right right. looking forward to talking to you again chris give my regards to juan and and everybody else down there i will all right right. take care hope to see you soon bye he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say 
you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just because i want to what's the difference if you turn away i'm gonna die one day why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation trying to meet an expectation wondering what they're gonna say when everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one day your body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a bird cage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from a It's a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground